Hey, Mr. Gorka, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'm excited. Love your love your voice on the radio. It's uh, radio was meant for you, sir. That's very kind. You've got you you've got some pipes yourself. Oh, that's nice. Buttered Nothing compared to you, though. I feel like if you're having a debate with some liberal, you could just start talking and they'd start shaking in their boots. Yeah, they usually end up as little puddles on the floor. But thanks for calling, Jason. Share, you've got 60 seconds. Share your wisdom. Well, I, I, my favorite magazine just did a little uh, feature on you saying you were the top uh, journalist of this year, and I was really excited, and I wasn't sure if you were aware of that yet. No. What, what is this that you are talking of? Uh, it's called uh, Dipshit Magazine. <laughs> oh, you're one of those. Ah, this is the definition of a coward. I love it how they lie. Um, I'll talk to Jason offline. This is Sebastian Bill. Oh, he's dropped off. What does that mean? Um, so we should get into it because our internet might die or some other calamity might occur. There's been a lot of calamities. <laughs> um, so I'll just I'll just start it off and introduce you. We are we're joined by uh, some janky YouTube Google Hangout thing uh, with uh, Prank Stallone himself. You go by Chris James. That's your. I go by Chris James. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay. They some like news articles. They said, "Oh, the prankster known as Prank Stallone." But I change <laughs> my name every week to a different uh-huh. like Prank Azaria or whatever, something like that. You know, something stupid. But Chris James stays. That's you. That's my name. So I. Oh, that's my sure. legal name. So I yeah. thought that was also a pun, and I just didn't get it. <laughs> yeah, you got your yeah. government name out there, man. We'll be careful of what we talk about. Uh, yeah, so well, you are a uh, you're a singer. You're a video artist, you're a comedian, and you're most famous for uh, just harassing various radio, like internet radio hosts. Uh, how, how did you get into this uh, field of work? Well, I, I'm a stand-up comedian is like what my, I live in Canada and I do stand-up comedy. And so that's sort of what my background is. Um, but I got tired of, I, I don't like traveling around and going to like a hotel or whatever. Uh, I got kind of bored of that. So I started thinking, what can I do? Uh, what can I do where I can stay home and still be creating stuff? So I basically just created a YouTube channel. I love editing video. So I started thinking, what can I do to get my hands on some video to edit? And I found Kurt Schilling's Breitbart uh, <laughs> radio show. He doesn't do it anymore, but he did it at the time. Um, and I realized he was taking calls and he had a live video stream. So I just started uh, calling in and bothering him. And then I, it sort of, uh, yeah, from there I moved on to different hosts. And Wow, you got Kurt Schilling, man. That's great. Make socks bloody again. That's what I say. I mean, well, what happened was it's sort of become an infamous thing on the channel now is that uh, he he misused the word defamed. He was talking about James Comey, which gives you an idea of the time frame. And he said, uh, how can five he be years ago, right? <laughs> it feels like it. I think it was two years ago. It's hard to tell in this crazy landscape. But yeah, the, uh, he said, oh, James Comey said he was defamed. How can you defame someone who isn't even famous? Oh, my God. Is so that like, that's like, oh, he thinks it's a fancy word for canceling somebody. He Hashtag just, it was like if a kid, you know, like a kid just defamed. So to take fame away. Um, but we wouldn't, <laughs> I, I wouldn't let him forget about that. I would yeah, call you him. You heard that and you said, I'm going to make this man pay. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of the whole thing of my 
the channel is I'll really focus in on one thing and I'll just mercilessly call hosts about it until it just completely breaks them down. The The best thing that ever happened with Kurt was I called him on his show. Then he went to a different show, the Howie Carr show. Some people might know it. It's another right wing radio show, but he went on as a guest. And then I called in on that show and again, confronted him with his uh, lack of understanding of the word defame. And it was really a great moment uh, in the channel's history. So I had a question for you because you first popped up uh, for me when you did the wonderful, wonderful uh, trolling of uh, Dr. Gorka. See, right now, normally in podcast world, this would be a time when you try on your shitty Gorka accent, but I'm not even going to do it. I'm just going to say <laughs> Dr. Gorka, PhD, that uh, professional alpha male. You called up to his show and you trolled the shit out of him. Well, I guess my question, having seen that wonderful performance by both you and your friend uh, Seth, is... Um, you know, doing these prank calls, it seems like you have to have no, you have to give no fucks and you got to be able to go in there and like offend somebody and be really irritable. So did it take you a long time to practice having no empathy or were you just born a sociopath? Well, and that's an interesting way to put it. I, um, I, I would always feel really bad after I prank call people. So when I, was a kid. I have, I did do prank calling when I was a kid. Um, I think that you know, in certain circumstances, I, I, I know you're just sort of joking around too, but I do, I do think I have, I know that I have empathy because there's certain hosts where if they're dealing with stuff, I feel really bad and I pull away and I stop pranking them. Uh, I guess the, the way I look at it is these people that I'm calling for the most part are basically unabided. They're, they're out there on the airwaves every day, spewing true hate, you know, trying to gather other people and convince them to hate other groups of people who don't deserve it. So I, I more see it as just a, a way of getting in the way of that uh, and sort of, you know, putting a speed bump in, in that in that road for them a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it is hard sometimes. There's no doubt about it. It is hard. You're sitting there and you're being incredibly mean to someone and humiliating them and embarrassing them. And I, and I do feel guilty with with someone like Gorka. I don't at all. I just kind of more feel nervous when I'm on the call. I don't want to mess it up. I want to make sure I get my prank in. And with Gorka, uh, did you have some repercussions afterwards? Because he uh, he went directly from taking that call to the White House to complain about it to Trump. What message would you have us send to our followers about what's being done to them and the importance of this issue for 2020? Because a lot of people out there who call into my show, don't want to use their real name, are afraid of putting no, their, their views up on the internet. What messages well, okay. would you give that? First of all, it's a great question, but it depends on what part of the country you're in. You, know, you go out to the Midwest. If I showed you a map, well, the interesting thing. So he was DMing me while he was at the White House. Uh, I guess somebody somebody spread the call around before I ever posted it on my channel. Somebody just was watching it. Someone at Media Matters and posted the video and everyone started sort of tagging me in it, saying this is Chris James. And then he followed me. Seb Gorka followed me and I DM'd him saying, please don't hurt me, Mr. Gorka. I'm just a little boy. I don't need I don't want you to hurt me, please. What's your Budapest? Yeah. Yeah. And then and then he got and and then I said, you know, if you don't respond to me here, though, I'm going to assume that you followed for nefarious reasons and I'll probably block you just so you know. And then he said, oh, go ahead, block me. It'll just show that you're a coward and a loser. <laughs> and then, of course, he inevitably ended up blocking me, the irony of it. <laughs> so, but uh, but he was basically saying, hey, come on the show. 
you know, I said to him, Hey, he said, I'm going to be talking about you on my next show and your cowardice. And I said, let me call in, I'll come on. And he said, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. You know, set it up with my producer. Uh, but then I guess somebody told him that was a bad idea. <laughs> somebody <laughs> said, hey, this guy's not going to debate you. He's just going to, you know, prank you again, obviously. <laughs> so so he pulled back from that. And then I called into the show and said, hey, get me on with Dr. Gorka. And his producer was like, no, you're not getting on. And and at that point, I, I explained to him something else that is kind of interesting is that when I was on hold with Gorka, he he had a guest on and he didn't realize that the audio in the break was going out to the people on hold. Yes. So he had a very high profile uh, right wing journalist on as a guest who put out a lot of personal information, including oh. his his cell phone number and a lot of other stuff. And I said to him, I said, did you know that that happened? And at that point, then Gorka sent me threatening messages saying, I'm going to pursue you to the le- to the furthest ends of the law. And you don't you know, it's all this crazy meant to be super intimidating stuff. Um, but I, of course, just screenshotted it and tweeted it out. <laughs> you know. Of course, most of uh, your other targets are much lesser figures. Some people, it, I would imagine you're like one of the only people listening and definitely one of the only people calling because you just you get through over and over again. You know, I, I watch every one of your shows and I don't even remember these people's names. There's like JJ something. JJ, yeah, JJ McCartney is the big one who we've been. He's the one who's been around since the start. You know, a lot of the other hosts that we called early, they just stopped doing their shows. They just they're just done. Um, but he's been around since the start. And he's the guy that we call about his shirt. We only ever mention his shirt <laughs> and we never say anything bad. Even we just kind of say, hey, man, I like your shirt today. It's a nice shirt. And it just happened. It, it's happened for so long now that he's just completely lost it. And that you're right about that. It's it's we're the only people calling. So he'll he'll get mad and he'll say, hey, you know, call. I need real people to call. And then it'll be another one of us. And and the craziest thing that used to happen before he realized was I've got a whole discord server full of people who make these calls if we need to. And they created fake accounts. So there was about 50 fake Facebook accounts and, and they were uh, in the chat on his, on his thing. So they had been doing it for months and actually convinced him that, you know, we're, they're real people. But in reality, it was two two real viewers and 30 fake viewers <laughs> they were all part of my channel wow that's that's great work you're doing god's work out there man a question occurred to me because i'm trying to think about the the practical aspects of the the praxis if you will of what you do and um you know with somebody like gorka who's a big figure or even smaller right-wing figures you know they they take themselves very seriously obviously and they have a very serious and some would say dangerous project that they're doing so in a sense it seems to me like you're kind of with using humor and using trolling you're kind of puncturing the uh i don't know these people's self-importance and also pointing to at the end of the day how fucking absurd it is the sort of yes. things that these people get in and talk about you want to am i am i close to to how you feel about uh, uh the prank calling? I mean, absolutely. One hundred percent. One of the things I love is the idea that, uh, you know, there's a lot of them, you know, some of them are well known to a certain degree. There's guys like Wayne Dupree, who is a, the news ninja. And I've called, you know, Fox News and Hannity and Laura Ingram. But I just like the idea of of making these people out to be the absolute buffoons that they are and showing that so that, you know, maybe when this person's talking this nonsense the next time, instead of thinking about what an evil, you know, terrible person, you just think, well, this person is a buffoon. 
you know, this person is an absolute idiot. So, you know, I don't really need to be as concerned. And that certainly is the case with some of the smaller shows. Um, but yeah, I, I really started it because I was incredibly frustrated with everything I saw politically and I didn't know what to do. So as I started making these prank calls, I realized this is in incredibly cathartic and I'm able to actually, you know, make it funny in some way uh, versus just pulling my hair out, you know, uh, seeing all these stories. Um, but you know what? The, uh, also, it's 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 just kind of fun to do. It's just kind of like uh, like doing stand up. I kind of got bored with doing it. This I get a huge rush. You know, when you make it through a call screener, you trick the call screener, and you're you waiting. And little the, uh, scratchy noise when you're on, you know, when you get yeah, through. Yeah. Exactly. Ding, I've, I've done some little, of these myself in my day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's when you hit that little ding, like when when Gorka on the last. So the first time I called Gorka, I used one of my favorite pranks, which is to say, "Hey, I love you." But I have I have this this family member who who hates you. And, and this is what my family member says about you. And it's really they they never clue in. I've done it to a lot of other hosts as well. They never clue in until you're, you know, five insults in yeah. and you're just sitting there insulting them. Just what like wild insults about their personality and everything right to their face. And they're just kind of saying, oh, OK, Um <laughs> So so that was like crazy. But then the, the second time I got through so quickly that I had the, the one where I called and said that he won an award for from Dipshit Magazine. <laughs> I, I just got through so quickly. It was like, bing, there it was. And I was just I was sort of frozen. I didn't really have an idea. And I just kind of had to roll with it. Um, so, yeah, when that when I'm in that moment, it uh, it's pretty exhilarating, to be honest. It really is. So for would you say for the listeners out there who um, are frustrated with how the world is and they need some catharsis that they too should uh, prank as many right wing figures as humanly possible or even just regular people like prank their parents or their yeah. siblings or whatever? Do you think that's uh, it's good? Well, therapy? don't don't prank people who don't deserve it. That's why that's uh, what I always say. And I, I think that. Yeah, I think that one of the beautiful things is it's, you know, it's the Quentin Tarantino thing where you make the villains just the worst in the world and then whatever happens to them, no one feels bad. So, you know, when you have these awful people, you can prank them and say really terrible things and no one ever feels bad about it. But yeah, I'm not I'm not into even though I used to listen to like Sal and Richard on Howard Stern, it, it does seem a little mean to be bothering people who are you know private citizens who are not you know asking for phone calls or whatever but i would say most definitely come join my discord we're always bringing new people in we, you know we always need new voices so and you can join that by supporting you on patreon right yeah well oh no you you can join it no matter what i do have a patreon and i have bonus episodes on my patreon so i do one episode a week on my youtube which is the main episode and then i do a bonus episode uh you know same style but uh, I sort of do, yeah, it's called the Nothing More Show. So it's just sort of the bonus stuff. And then I do a, a podcast as well. Uh, but no, if you if you just go to my, just send me a DM. That's, what, you know, on Twitter. And then I'll just send you the Discord link. It's as simple as that. And uh, you usually twitch at this hour 
too, but you made uh, some time for us because you didn't want to cross the digital picket line. Oh, right? that's right. Yeah, yeah, you- that's right. I do. I do a Twitch stream, so uh, I I I have my friends, the Go Off Kings, who I do. I'm sort of the fourth member of the Go Off Kings. That's Jesse Farrar, Rob Wizen, and uh, Stefan Heck. So those guys are friends of mine. So I play games with them, and then I started my own call-in stream on Twitch just for fun at first. And then I sort of realized this is a viable thing I can do. And so, yeah, I do three days a week. I do, it's called no prank radio NPR. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, so, so I, I basically, the idea of it is I started a call in show and I tell people, even though I'm a prankster, I don't want anyone pranking me, please no pranks. And the whole idea is it's, it's just everyone pranks me. Mm-hmm. So, so it's just a bunch of really kind of funny internet people and they all, they create characters and things like that. So that, that is uh, a lot of fun as well. Uh, but yeah, of course, with the strike uh, today and tomorrow, I'm not going to be streaming at all. So should we go on, on Twitch right now and see who's scabbing? Um, <laughs> exactly. On the Minnesota workers. It's Hassan H- on there. There's an Hassan H bomber guy, uh, Chapo FYM. Uh, we're going to be checking like, up on Scabbo you guys. FYM. Yeah. Oh, shit. I know Chapo's not streaming. I thought That's they true. tweeted about it, but yeah. who? I mean, you'd think Hassan wouldn't be, but anyways. But who you would help. Uh, yeah. what's, what's it, what's the connection between Amazon? I mean, we know why there is a strike call. It's, um, not, it didn't come f- from Twitch streamers first demanding more bits or something like that. I'm old, so I don't even know how Twitch works, but it came out of, I believe, warehouse workers, right? Who are organizing yeah. for a union and a higher wage. But what is the connection between Amazon and Twitch? Do they own Twitch yeah. directly? Yeah, Amazon owns Twitch directly. A- Amazon owns fucking yeah, what don't they own? so much stuff. It's really, I mean... They don't own you know. YouTube, right? No, no it's Google. Google. Yeah, there's Google, Amazon. There's like seven companies now, and they just basically own everything. Yeah, no, it is really, it's unfortunate because um, I'm not a fan of Amazon. I don't use Amazon myself. I'm not a fan of what they're doing to the world, I think, like a lot of people. But, uh, you know, I have to work for them, and I create. Anyway, it's just one of those things about living in the world, right? You just, you can't be altruistic or else you got to go live out in the forest. Well, I, yeah, I, mean, I think that it's always the thing with boycotts. It's a consumer action. So it's obviously, you know, it's an important thing to stand by workers and struggles. But if you've seen, you know, in the past consumer campaigns against Nestle and whatever, it gives them some bad PR, but it's only really effective when it's in concert with, um, you know, workers trying to organize and show their power at the point of production. Which they did today in uh, Minnesota, right? They had a, a six hour strike at one of the fulfillment centers, I think. Yeah, that's right. In Minnesota. Yeah, that's it, to think. But I was on on Twitter earlier. Sometimes I'll spend some of my time on Twitter. I don't know if you guys, but uh, oh, it's, yeah. <laughs> it was just so many. I don't know how I got down some wormhole of people posting about how like, hey, they better, uh, you know, these Amazon workers better skip their shift today with how much shopping I'm going to do. And I was like, this is oh, never going to work. No, nothing's, you know, it's really we something needed to be done about 20 years ago. That's really genuinely the way that I feel. And I feel like there's some issues in this current world we have that cannot uh, be rectified in the current state. And it's uh, sort of a sad way to look at it, but I really do believe it in some. So in you're some- saying tear it all down. 
Yeah, for I mean, honestly, that's that's destroy what I'm saying. Destroy everything and destroy what you destroy. <laughs> destroy the economy. Totally. A full-on revolution. I don't want to say, I mean, a full-on revolution where the people rise up against the powerful people in a really meaningful, physical way. I don't want to say physical way, like violence, but no, in a real... Fine. We do it all the time way. here. Okay, okay. Digital, digital uprising. Yeah, they, that needs to happen because it's, yeah, the concentration of wealth is, when you have people with that much power and influence over the world, it's pretty difficult for, yeah. I mean, if change. you think about it, communism is the ultimate prank. <laughs> you've just got you have all these workers who are just, expropriated. They just come every day and they're like, oh, yeah, thank you for the wage. I'll make these things for you. And then one day they just they show up and they just take over and they yeah. murder you. Yeah. And you're you're just sitting in your office and they come and they kill you. And that's yeah, and then you've just been pranked so yeah, hard in that case. Yeah. I mean, if you think of the greatest pranks in history, I mean Attila the Hun, lots of <laughs> flying flying pranks on uh, yeah. horseback. And uh I mean I think the people that got pranked maybe even harder than Sebastian Gorka was uh the Romanov family. You know, yeah. that Bolsheviks were like, Oh yeah, you were you're totally fine in this house here, you know. We're not gonna completely murk you in a basement, you know, when the white army comes to try and get you. Just kidding, you got pranked, pranked you know. Pranked. Uh, the, the, the interesting thing is it's I used to try to I mean, I find some left wing political figures to be mockable as well in a different way. But you just calling that there's nothing like the right wing for one. There's so many of them. I mean, I find new ones every single day. Just they're very well uh, funded, even if they don't have listeners. They exactly. always got money. somehow. Exactly. And their their base, the people who follow that, they really respond well to that. They they really like uh, take pride in that. And they're really like engaged in the audience or it with the the hosts and it just doesn't happen on the left i don't know what like i'm not smart enough to know why i guess it's yeah i'm not sure why I'm but there's sam cedar yeah. but i think he might lose <laughs> also he are, he he likes you i think so i don't think it's gonna, I think <laughs> i'm he knows going it. i'm going on his show so oh okay. shit okay well, yeah, we're uh, we're majority report adjacent, so uh, yeah, you're hitting that's... all the rounds here. You just got to go on Michael Brooks show after this, and the uh, Brendan Finn experience. That sounds like a. That's. I mean, I want to go on everything. I mean, I I've been. This has been a godsend for me. You know, him and Vic Berger is another guy. Oh, who, hell yeah. Yeah, so Vic Berger's, uh, you know, a guy I look up to a lot, and he shared my channel, said it was his favorite channel. And between that and Sam Cedar, it was Matt Leck who actually, you know, turned him on, I think. But between those two playing my stuff, it has just been, I was really at a point where it was sort of at 1,500 subscribers. My Patreon was at 200 subscribers, wasn't growing. I was just throwing my hands up in the air saying, you know, I've been doing this for two years. I got What's going to take here? And then boom, just... Just like that, those two people said something about it, and it was like three thousand new subscribers. It was just insane the change, and it's called yeah. that the cedar factor. The cedar factor, yeah. I'm, <laughs> it's uh, hey, it's made my life a whole lot better. I'm moving into a new apartment, and uh, probably might not be able to do it without Sam. So, well, next time we see him, we will uh, tell him thank you on your behalf, and then we'll also try to figure out a way to prank him. If you if you were to prank Sam Sam Cedar just hypothetically because he does have a call in show, yeah. What do you think the best way to get through and really get under you, his skin? You would skin? have to say you're a libertarian. That's number one. Yeah. yeah. Can you roll with that? Can you can you think of a bit uh, how to how to get Sam and Michael see, too for that matter? See, it's so much harder. That's what I mean. Like it's so much harder because his ability to deal with that type of stuff is so much better. So I, I feel like 
there then there are some right wing hosts. Weirdly, Bubba the Love Sponge. Do you, you guys know Bubba the Love Sponge? I know I know him from the uh the white uh white power yeah. hour uh Tucker Carlson thing where he said that I Iraqis were illiterate savage monkeys. That's I've never listened to him, but that's how I know of him. Well, uh, and he also he famously Hulk Hogan fucked his wife. Oh well. yeah, <laughs> it was like Peter Thiel destroying Gawker through a lawsuit. Oh my god, yeah. what a world! So, it, it, but that guy is his. He's he gets it. He understands what a prank caller is looking for, the reaction they're looking for, and he just doesn't give it to you. He just uh, he just does not give it to you. And I feel like Sam would be the same way. He would almost immediately recognize that it was a prank that someone was trying to get the better of him, and then he would not give it to him he would he would just the key thing to do is just hang up the phone and pretend it never happened if you do that it's giving really nothing at all you know if you just hang up and say all right uh, next caller or whatever then I'll, I'll stop calling pretty quickly if that's the case, you know? But it's these guys like Seb Gorka who are like, you are a little girl, you <laughs> little girl. Like, that's what it's all about, you know? The the prank takes a short amount of time and whatever. It's just a dumb prank. You should prank. cut that out because I don't want them to catch on. Like, <laughs> I, like there's, there are stretches of your show where it's just kind of hosts that have learn to love you to some extent <laughs> yes yes and we do and we do change it up and that's why i have implemented a rating system for the hosts so there's green green hosts orange and red green and the means green, go. yeah green no, green means that they're good they're oh, they're okay. good hosts that's orange the man means cave zone right man cave matt connerton who's actually become like a patron he called in on my <laughs> show and stuff nice. and these, these are guys who don't have bad politics and that was one of the things i sort of realized as i started getting more viewers is that it's sort of unfair to lump some of these guys in with the Gorkas and the JJ McCartney's because a lot of people are coming to my channel and just assuming everyone I call is a right wing lunatic. So I sort of put that system in. So, it, you know, and then, of course, I put it in last week and then this week I forgot to do it. So. All right, let's let's go through a little scenario here. OK, get it. Get in your whatever you do to get uh, like, you know, on your game to get ready to prank. OK, okay let me go. Scenario. Hang on. Let me go eat a weed gummy. <laughs> <laughs> but you're going to say stretch. But yeah. Same shit. Uh, all right. So so you get you you get invited to a uh, right wing event and uh, a friend of yours takes you by and it turns out it's in a giant aircraft uh, hangar in somewhere like Prioria. Right, right, and mm -hmm. you go and you show up, and you're standing in this giant crowd. It turns out that it's a MAGA rally, it's a Donald Trump rally, and the man himself gets up there and he starts to, you know, do his great oratory about what's wrong with the world, how what you know races of people should be sent back to their shithole countries or whatever. And a Secret Service member towards the end of it taps you on the shoulder. He says, "Sir, sir, the president would like to meet you. Come backstage." All right, now you're backstage. You're in the belly of the beast you're walking up to Donald Trump. You've got 15 seconds. How do you prank the president of the United States? Is it, is it being recorded? Yes. Okay. It has to be recorded. This has to be for posterity. Okay. I mean, if it's being recorded, I suppose, see, it, there's, there's a couple ways I could go with it. One would be to, Game it out, man. Game it out. so one would be to pretend to be, be an over exaggerated, uh, supporter of his, um, which is sort of an angle I like to go with sometimes. So like, you know, I picture, but then all of that puts me in a position where I'm doing something bad. Like my, my initial thing is to think of, to literally get down on my knees and start licking his boots, <laughs> like just start licking them and saying like, please let me taste your boots, Mr. President, sir, mega, 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 mega screaming mega over and over again as I lick his boots. 
and I think that would probably get some sort of a point across. But then at the I, same time, I'm also <laughs> licking the president's uh, shoes at that point and sort of look like an idiot. Kind of worth it, though. Honestly, I, I mean, would do yeah. it. 30 million views in like 12 hours. It might be worth it. Yeah, I don't mind. Uh, I don't mind. You don't doing... mind facing yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, I sometimes we do. We have a prank. We, do, we just called the Dookie Boys. And we just basically if it's any anyone who has a discord call in line on their show. So anyone where you can just join the call and and they can't stop you sort of a thing or you can just keep coming in we'll just go in there and they'll be having their conversation and then just in the middle of it we'll just start saying like i did a poopy in my diaper i did a poopy so like <laughs> we're definitely not above just making absolute idiots of ourselves in order to you know get a funny reaction so yeah maybe i would yeah maybe i would i would go with that then i would just start but, licking his boots but i mean it also it also would be, I mean, I guess I might get in legal trouble, but it would be funny to just just pull my pants down, bend over and give him a goatsy, you know, just give <laughs> just gape on him. That I mean, would take I, some prep. I mean, <laughs> I mean <laughs> if you gaped on the president, though, that is that's in the news cycle for at least three days, I would say. Donald Trump has never been goatseed. I can just no. tell by the way he goes through his life. That Absolutely. He just had, had a, that crucial experience that all of us younger people have had so many times and shared. I, <laughs> I do a on my stream on my Twitch stream. I do a different layout for everyone where I'll be inside something like inside a microwave. It'll be some weird sort of layout. And I've always wanted to do a triple X one where I'm inside the goatsy, but I just, I mean, I couldn't do it on Twitch, obviously. It's about time for Goatsy to make a comment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It'd be much cooler than Rick rolling him, which is also passe. But yeah. Yeah, actually, that would be kind of funny, though. It is funny to do stuff that's like, you know, five years old or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it comes back around like the 90s are back, you know? Yeah, so um, the way you describe it with your, um, you know, the affinity you feel with Vic Berger and also the sort of like over-the-top absurdity of what you do, it seems to me that uh, Mad, Mad Magazine, uh, which started, I think, in the 60s or 70s, was kind of the progenitor of this whole thing. And they closed, I believe. They had their last issue last week. Uh, were you a Mad Magazine fan? What do you feel about them finally closing up shop? I mean, I was. I mean, growing up, it was like a huge. Ma I, I was cracked as well. I know that's not a. You know, some people like you to choose one or the other, but I liked both. I was mad and cracked. You know, cracked, right? Obviously. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure. I live in Canada, so sometimes I don't know. I'll say something, and then they're like, "What are you talking about? That's not." Um, but yeah, so I, I would like every time when a new issue would go to this little corner store called Monado. And I always remember uh, going to get the Mad Magazine. I, I Some of the stuff, I, I'd even get it when I was super young and I didn't really understand. Um, but yeah, I absolutely it was pretty political too. You know, like I remember my friend's father had a whole bunch of old ones and they're like making fun of Gerald Ford and shit. And I was like, this is funny. I don't know. Yeah. I don't understand what's happening. But <laughs> yeah. <Gerald Ford's> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, exactly. They would almost give you these uh, uh, like truths about the world that you would come to understand from mad magazine that like yeah gerald ford's a doofus you know uh dan quayle is done like things like right. that i learned that from mad magazine i didn't understand you know i didn't watch uh, politics on on tv or whatever uh but yeah about it i i didn't know it was still going and it does it seems to me obviously magazines are less popular <laughs> for a number of reasons and i think it was sort of difficult for them to get into the online thing because there was so many people who had copied what they 
were right. doing and then became quite popular online before they sort of moved over into that arena. So by the time they moved over, they're like, hey, we've already got enough of this. And they were like, hey, wait, we created this, you know? But Yeah. Plus, like, the, it, it was so intensive. Like, uh, I mean, the car cartoons they did took so much work. And nowadays, everything seems like it's freelance and it's sort of like thrown together. So I could yeah. see how it'd be hard to make that transition when they really did put a lot of uh, creativity and effort into that. Yeah, totally. The artists, there was the one guy who's like so famous. I forget what his name is now. But yeah, they're, they're, some of that art was just so cool. It reminds me, I mean, Ellie, Ellie Valley. You guys know Ellie? Yeah, yeah, we've had him on the show. He's a great guy. He's awesome. Yeah, he came on my Twitch stream. I couldn't believe it. He, just, <laughs> he agreed to come on my dumb Twitch stream. But yeah, he his cartoons sort of to me, uh, are reminiscent, the drawings of, of Mad and... Uh, so I think there are, you know, you can definitely see it in the influence in a lot of wonderful current cartoonists. So uh, just to wrap it up, uh, leftists are completely infantile. We like <laughs> cartoons that are for nine-year-old boys. We like yeah. prank calling people and talking about poop in our diapers. We like to do um, aughts uh, memes to people, like uh -huh. Rick roll them and open our buttholes at them. <laughs> yeah. As Sean often says... Uh, Vulgar Marxism explains ninety percent of the world, and the vulgar, the better, I guess. Right. Yeah. So you're really uh, you're carrying on the tradition of vulgar Marxism. So did you want to? Um, thanks so much for coming on. Did you want to plug anything before you uh, head out? Uh, well, just yeah, the not even a show youtubecom slash not even a show, uh, twitch.tv slash no prank radio, and my my Twitter's at the CJS. So if you everything's on my Twitter, so check it out. And yeah, I'm I'm doing it every week, and there's about a uh, hundred some odd episodes you can go back and, and watch if you like it. So yeah, come check it out. Yeah, everybody subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's, it's really good. It's incredible. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks so much. Bye, right, Chris. Later. Bye. Welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I am Sean KB. I'm AP Andy. And we are here with a new series we have, another spinoff, if you thought history is a weapon. Uh, Vampire Castle and Prolocult wasn't enough. This is our fourth, our fourth series. It's called Boys Chat. Just boys. Just, just for the boys. There was a girls chat um, in LA. R.I.P. Uh, but, uh, you know maladies have befallen our 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 girl our girls friends they have gone our the, girls friends the, gone the way of all flesh but uh, uh the flesh will rise again i think on the third day they'll be fine, they'll be uh, fine. but in the meantime uh, the boys are back in town boys are back in town how's your summer going sean my summer is excellent. Uh, I worked a bit in construction. I built a nice big foundation, and then I got laid off. And uh, the job, as happens when a job ends. But uh, as the summer's gone on, I've been to the beach. I've been on various different trips. I've been uh, hanging out. I've been reading lots of books, doing some history as a weapon, and loving life. How about you? Yeah, uh, we're, I'm back. It was, you know, where I was. The weather was much nicer back in New York. It sucks. It's the the dog days of summer and uh andrews lee and i i, I went to see his show dummy the other day which, oh, cool. is, which is great and we were talking about what that means after the show kind of having this mindless conversation about the dog days of summer and i said what does that mean and we looked it up and what it means is al pacino came up the, with um, it. well actually that's that was his theory and that was that that movie is set on a day in september uh, okay. and so i think i think like any 
any afternoon can be a dog day afternoon. It was just a lousy, like shitty, frustrating afternoon. Right. It's a dog because day Because you're trying, you know, when you're trying to rob a bank and like there's a long line <laughs> and then it's hot. Yeah. It's Your like, partner needs a uh, trans uh, transgender operation, right? right that was right. the point of the movie, Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, the best of us. It's like a bad afternoon. Yeah. Uh, but the dog days of summer actually comes from uh, ancient Greece and Rome. No shit. Um, they also it's like the Ides of March. Yeah, they really are our progenitors because they whined about how hot it was in July, um, and they they described the days that it was so hot of when uh, the dog star Sirius, which is the brightest ah. star in the sky, um, you know, arose in some constellation type thing. So basically, the dog days of summer are basic. Are just like Greco-Roman, yeah. Greco-Roman uh, Mercury in retrograde. Ah, it's like the Ides just, of March, sort of for shitty weather. They just blame. Yeah, well, the Ides of March is just one day. The dog days are, you know, when that. It's like, oh, there's that fucking star again, making everything shitty for us. So yeah, it's hot in New York. Hot as shit. Um, it also everybody's is very, angry in New York when it, when it gets hot. Oh people are God. angry. They fight each other. They fight all the time. Um, and and something that that really affects me is uh, it's it gets much more dangerous to bike oh, because yeah. oh yeah, even though it's you know cyclists are outside and are not air conditioned like yes. these people in cars or subways people in cars are mad and they uh you know they run over cyclists all the time um there's been 15 cyclist deaths deaths this year oh, in new shit. york compared to 10 uh last year and who you know it, people say it's because there's more people cycling because they're not they're not cycling safe enough and obviously, each case is different. But things that, for example, the mayor of New York could do is demand Bill uh, DB demand an actual investigation into each death instead of what the police do, which just they're like, oh well, fuck cyclists, and they cover it up. Oh my and god! And they don't press yeah. charges, or they they give the driver like a very minor charge, saying that technically he wasn't supposed to be on that road or something like that. So How there was a massive oh. um, die-in in Washington Square Park last week uh, uh, of cyclists protesting this and you know I wasn't there to make it but obviously full solidarity to all uh, all our cycling comrades stay safe I, I gotta say it's incredible to me because um, tra- uh, bicyclers in New York City or elsewhere I'm sure in the country too they're supposed to follow the same rules of the road as uh, you know automobile drivers are right? legally yes legally yes and, you know, many of them do, except for maybe blowing some stop signs and stoplights when it's, you know, three o'clock in the morning or when they're just feeling like... We shouldn't right? sugarcoat it. Cyclists can be assholes sure. and often are, like sure. anybody else, All right, but so they just pose much less danger. So like drivers, they can be assholes. They're just not in like two tons of steel and right. fucking glass, you know, and moving at 35 miles per hour. But they're supposed to follow the traffic laws and the onus is on them to do that. But then at the same time, if you basically like you know vehicular manslaughter is a thing but like you said they never 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 actually like investigate and charge people for shit so bicyclists like the onus is completely on them in order to stay alive in a city where like all right it's nice you know you put in bike lanes bike lanes are great bike lanes are they're completely worthless when you have trucks other vehicles, motorcycles, or just random pedestrians standing in the middle of the fucking bike lane. Cops are always parked in the fucking bike lane, and you have to salmon out and fish, like fish right into the fucking street, and you get hit by a car. It's absolutely fucking insane. So solidarity to the people out there who are, you know, making this known. It's not. It's a serious issue when anybody dies, and it is something that people should be organizing about because, uh, yeah, like 
15 dead is 15 dead and it is political critical mass was political and it is political yeah i mean critical mass is interesting part of the story a lot of listeners might not know about it because uh the police have just repressed it out of existence but during the 2000s there's a movement it was all over the world I'm, I'm sure it still exists in some places but it was uh it was very popular in new york um every like the last friday or the first friday of every month um anywhere between a few dozen to uh several hundred cyclists would gather at union square uh, for a group ride, an un you know unled, unauthorized group ride, taking the streets uh, to show you know the idea was it if you have a critical mass of cyclists, then you no longer have to be afraid of cars. And it was a bike demonstration, and the biggest one, of course, was at the two thousand four RNC RNC when it was several thousand. How many people did they arrest at that? Because I feel like that was that that crackdown at the RNC. I remember it happening. Didn't didn't the cops arrest like hundreds of people at that? I don't remember how many people they arrested specifically at the critical mass. Um, I just remember how brutal it but was. But at, at like the protest to follow, they arrested thousands of people, yeah. and a lot of those people got some uh, a big payday out of that. Actually. Yeah, I was fortunate to be not arrested at the mm-hmm. RNC in two thousand and four. But uh, my friends who were uh, kettled and netted and brought in by the uh, fishers of men known as the NYPD and put onto an old abandoned pier uh, behind a chain link fence, similar to the concentration camps you see now uh, down south, uh, without food and water and bathrooms for, you know, two days or whatever while they were processed. Yeah, they got a nice little payday out of that. Not worth it. Cops shouldn't have done it. The fucking Mayor Bloomberg administration was really keeping the screws on that shit. But I do remember critical mass being a big part of it because... If I recall correctly, 15 years ago, it was the night before, I think, the critical mass right. did it. And so I think that the the response of the NYPD was really fucking intense. And it gave people a sense the day of the massive protests in New York City, gave people a sense of what they were going to be facing. And certainly what they tried to do with critical mass, they did to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people at that insane protest. Maybe the craziest one I've been to in my life. Yeah, the police saw how powerful critical mass could be just, you know a fast moving protest of a lot of people and, and afterwards they just violently cracked down on it you know there was a lot of famous videos of police just literally just punching cyclists as they drive by just randomly um just horrible shit and you know it's, it still happens there's still videos all the time of cops uh violently harassing cyclists because they don't like cyclists because they drive and that's all there is to it. Yeah, and it's a very suburban sort of mentality. I made fun of bike lanes once as a joke on the show and got in trouble, but I won't do that again. But yeah, no, it's 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 really insane. I've had two friends who have been killed on bikes, and uh, so this obviously is something I'm familiar with, and it's something that uh, direct action does get the goods because critical mass was around for many, many years and put pressure you know, on city leaders and state leaders to try to do something, you know, to try to keep people safer. So it's not perfect, obviously, but, you know, a shitty bike lane that cops park in and you have to, like, go into traffic to get around them is, you know, it's better than nothing. And also, uh, that said, cyclists, you know, be a little bit more polite. I know it's frustrating, <laughs> but don't just yell at everybody. Andy's the most polite cyclist you've ever seen. He never no, I yell at, at anybody. No, I yell at people all the time, and afterwards I feel bad about it um, <laughs> because I don't have this. Because some cyclists, because like so, it's so dangerous and it's so stressful at times, they have this idea that if anyone gets in their way, that you can just yeah. like abuse them. And yeah. I that's, I mean, especially when it's like somebody old or a child, or it's just you know 
treat everybody with respect if they make them even if they make a mistake you know and don't salmon folks do not salmon yeah it really uh, if you, if you, if you can avoid it you can not salmon or right on the sidewalk less little as possible yeah. All right, so that's our bike update on boys chat. Bicycle news. <laughs> so let's see what's in the news today. Uh, Trump accuses Congresswomen of <laughs> hating the U.S. Oh. They push back. A message in Republicans' muted criticism. It's Trump's party. Ugh. New asylum rule is one of Trump's most restrictive immigration efforts. Nice. Epstein safe has piles of cash and a fake passport. <laughs> prosecutors say. Epstein, uh, Epstein, Epstein. So, lots of cool news. Lots of good stuff going on. Do you have any takes on Epstein? Was ne- I was never like particularly interested in the Epstein stuff um, until I listened to um, our friend, uh, Parallax Views guy. J.D. Vance. Or <laughs> until I listened to... Uh, Cyrus Vance. <laughs> until I listened to J.D. Vance's Parallax Views, the <laughs> podcast episode on, on the Epstein case. They had the on this, uh, I forgot his name, but the guy from... Porkins policy. Oh, I've listened um, to that before. That's good. Yeah. And yeah, th- these people are just like obsessed with the Epstein th- thing in a way a that as far as show. I can tell, but they're not like conspiracy theorists, Porkins, right? Porkins, Porkins does a lot of conspiracy stuff. Parallax okay. views, is, I think is more, but yeah. They're, you, they're, but do you think I shouldn't trust the Porkins people or? No, I think there's, they're vaguely critical. I don't, I don't think when it comes to conspiracy theories, it's a matter of trust. I think that like, People who are typically into the conspiracism stuff, and as we both are, like as like an interest, I feel like you should take all their facts in, but not probably follow them down that rabbit hole. Uh-huh. So I don't know. What did you find from? from I this? felt like they're on the level, but maybe I I fell for it. Uh, but yeah, they they drew a lot of connections. Uh, they they drew some like pretty serious connections between Epstein and Trump, which you know a lot of that stuff is is coming out or has been out. Really, there's some pretty dark stuff in Trump's past. Uh, darker than we even knew and Epstein might be the key to it so I don't know check out the Porkins stuff and the the Parallax Views episodes with them and uh, I guess judge for yourself I've got two takes on the Epstein Uh, the most important one I'll I'll put this one up top is that um, if anybody's read the great philosopher Ayn Rand uh, the objectivist philosopher I I strongly encourage you to check out Atlas Shrugged it is a well written and uh, very concise beautiful philosophical novel you'll know of this character named uh, John Galt who is the hero of that book Uh, it takes place who is that who is John Galt yeah Yeah. who is that he's a guy he uh, this takes place in some sort of imagined past where there's still trains you know that's (laughs) why I love the book so much I love trains and it's all about you know this he's a train guy he's a train boy yeah Uh essentially he He likes trains he knows the difference between a 464 Uh and uh, you know he's good but um yeah, you know, there's this heroic figure, this capitalist ubermensch that, you know, refuses any longer to be exploited and oppressed by the working class. So, like, He refuses this, to make eye contact with the working class. <laughs> he refuses to open the door for the working class. And so he ends up, like, going Galt, as they call it. You know, who is John Galt is sort of this conspiracy that spreads among the capitalist class. He disappears, and of course, like, the inversion of what you would think if there are no capitalists in, Ayn, you know, in Ayn Rand's world... All of a sudden, nothing gets done. You know, imagine that. Like, imagine if, you know, there was nobody exploiting labor, you know, and nobody to, you know, fucking sit on the profits that are extracted out of all the workers. How would we possibly run things? I, I can't imagine. So, anyways, this is a long winded way of saying that Ayn Rand's wonderful, beautiful novel, Atlas Shrugged, which you should all read and really just indulge yourself in that material, needed an update. 
It needed another rich, plutocratic, ubermensch, you know, heroic figure to come in, but it needed to be updated. So you had John Galt with his rape trains. And now I think for this day, you know, the update, the patch on the Iron Rand is Jeffrey Epstein and his pedo planes. Jeffrey Epstein is the modern John Galt. He is that hero because if the libertarian right has anything to say, you know, politically and constructively for this world, it's that age of consent laws are bullshit. So Jeffrey Epstein is really John Galting the entire world right now because he wanted his own island. You know, this isn't like John Galt going into some Galt somewhere in Colorado and pulling back. He made his dream. He is a real life John Galt just updated for like, you know, sex traffic is good because it's a contract and there's no age of consent. So uh, this very important lesson, I think, for everybody to, you know, maybe... Maybe change the way you think about Jeffrey Epstein as a, this disgusting monster. Maybe he's a hero. So do you think the political class is protecting Epstein not because they're all implicated in this uh, child sex ring, but because on his island there's a device that just <laughs> produces everything and you, don't, you just don't need workers anymore? I think that's what it is. I think... Um, he obviously couldn't have that on his uh, East 77th Upper East Side apartment. So he couldn't have it down by Mar-a-Lago in uh, Palm Beach. But if you were to go to that Virgin Islands, everyone thinks he's hiding all this compromat, all this blackmail material on everybody. What he's really hiding is the free energy orgone machine. Mm-hmm. He collected so many orgone par- particles oh, yeah. you know, over this time, and he turned it into energy. And that is what the capitalist class doesn't want us to have. And honestly, since Epstein is a hardworking guy who's earned every single dollar he's made, uh, not through blackmail, but just from working really, really hard, uh, I think more power to him. I, I think that like, uh, if we prosecute him, we're really prosecuting ourselves. Yeah, adrenochrome is a false flag. <laughs> really, the orgone, the, like a child's orgone, is really, that's what's fueling the world. That's right. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Reich, Randian actually. <laughs> yeah, I try to synthesize the thought of Wilhelm Reich and Ayn Rand. Oh, my God. Uh, this whole podcast is going in a different direction, guys. You're coming with me. You're coming to the island. <laughs> Antifada is now. Uh, Sean is just <laughs> scribbling some bizarre psychoanalytic charts <laughs> in front of me. Yeah. Well, uh, you'll get there, man. You'll get there. Posadas is canceled. <laughs> Posadas was definitely a total normie compared to Reich. It's like not even close. Yeah. Friendship with Mark's canceled. <laughs> my so, new best yeah. friend is Jeffrey Epstein. No, no, but my, my other take, it's not as important as that first take, is that um, this, you know, people want to, to concentrate on the most um, disgusting and like, um, like visceral sort of aspect of this, of course, which is uh, young women being sexually trafficked, sexually assaulted, and obviously this one man's power to do that and uh, his ability to get away with it for so long is, is the first thing that strikes you. And it's obviously, you know, fucking horrifying. And uh, that's why people are so outraged by it. I think that generally as we step back from it, you know, I think it really does go to show not that the capitalist class, the ruling class are completely all child eating lizard monsters who just like get off on child rape and adrenochrome just because they're like uniquely evil. It's just that think of it as maybe as an allegory for the way in which once you have money and you have power, you not only can do whatever you want. But that power also corrupts. Oh, that's the laundry going off. But that power also um, 
you know, corrupts people to the extent that, you know, even in a way like capitalism is bad for the ruling class too, you know, like it, it, it really distorts people's subjectivities and it really turns people who might have had a decent chance into like absolute fucking monster rapists like Jeffrey Epstein. Maybe if he had stayed like welcome back Cotter at like the Dalton school, you know, and never worked for Bear Stearns. Apparently that's when it started, actually. It's at the Dalton School. Uh, uh, I don't know how far back in Jeffrey Epstein's past <laughs> you have to get to when he was a good guy. Yeah. But my point is, is that, you know, there's something about capitalism. It's obviously worse for workers, but it also distorts, you know, the, the world and uh, gives way too much power to people in the ruling class that end up, like, ruining themselves, too, as they fuck over. Well, I mean, a better example might be, like, all the people who are now sucked into it. Like, uh, there's, there's a photo of Steven Pinker and a couple other yeah, intellectuals yeah. on his plane and one of the guys who's in the picture was like look I just I just got a free flight to a TED conference I don't know anything about this stuff please don't <laughs> consider me a pedophile but like uh, like Pinker and, and Dershowitz defended this guy yeah they did and he ever was, was, was attorney and Pinker put in like expert evidence in the trial. Yeah. And his expert evidence was some like linguistic bullshit. Yeah. yeah. Wasn't it? Um, it was like the uh, in, in the that Coen Brothers movie, the man who wasn't there when when they get like a philosopher uh, <laughs> uh, defense attorney to be like, how do we know what truth really is? <laughs> Depends on what your definition the Heisenberg is, principle is. says the more you examine something, the less, you know, the so how can we say this man? And that's what Stephen Pinker did for Epstein, yeah, you know, yeah. and you know, Stephen Pinker is one of the most well-regarded <laughs> uh, philosophers in the world. Yes, he is. Yeah, because he because he runs interference for the elite. That's what it and that's is. That's what he might not even be a pedophile. He may not. He may sincerely not know anything about the Epstein stuff. But he's complicit. But when you're at this level of defending the elite, the capitalist class, you just it's it's just the same way anybody sticks up for their friends, but you're right. sticking up for like. People who have people. way more capacity <laughs> to do truly evil harm. Yeah, I mean, that actually, that's a good point. And it brings me, I think, maybe to a clarification because, um, you know, you could talk about the bourgeoisie, you could talk about the capitalist class as like that small group of people that actually is extracting the surplus and dominating us in like the productive sphere, you know, and uh, obviously, you know, in the marketplace. But um, maybe the definition of what ruling class is is more expansive even than the capitalist because. I think maybe you could say that Steven Pinker, although he doesn't have the money that Jeffrey Epstein has, he is in the ruling class along with much of the mainstream media because they run interference, you know, and do a lot of work for these fucking ghouls because they're bought into the entire system. So, you know, being part of the ruling class is as much an ideological function, as much as a political and, um, I don't know, juridical function as it is anything else. So there is, we can, we can take the capitalist class as like the, that determining category, which like, ultimately is the exploitive factor in bourgeois society, but also take people like Pinker for the reasons that you talked about and put them into like a broader ruling class that like has the mechanisms that helps that capitalist class to rule. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Pinker is a uh, vastly influential among people who just want to believe that everything is good. It's all good. Never been so good. And you know, if a few children have to be 
tortured to, you know, reproduce the, uh, the, the, the brilliant intellects who keep the capitalist class running yep. by, uh, I don't know, uh, blackmailing them yeah. for, you know, that, they, that's the job creators. Anyway, we should move <laughs> on to, oh, I should say, before we move on to our next subject, which is uh, concentration camps, okay. um, we will be interviewing Chris James. Chris James. Uh, about uh, some lighthearted pranks. It'll I'm be Chris very James, fun. bitch. Maybe we should just put that first. Uh, <laughs> Instead of talking about the pedophiles and concentration camps (laughs) that run the world. Uh, Um, I'm Chris James. So Chris James uh, is a man uh, doing some Chappelle show references. Very good. Yeah, very good. Thanks. Uh, You were one of the people that I liked in high school that uh, quoted Chappelle show all the time. One of my best friends. You should have seen me with the jerky boys, but we'll get to that. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, Chris James is a a prank man. A a latter day jerky boy. Yeah. Um, and we'll be talking about uh, how, uh, you know, how he pranks Sebastian Gorka and then Gorka whined to Trump about it, which is amazing. And also um, slid into his DMs. <laughs> yeah. When you have Gorka in your DMs, oh, I tell man. you, he's six foot four in real life and six four on the Internet. He's thick. Yeah. <laughs> He's, he's intimidating. Got real, he's got a real cyber power behind him, too. Um, Don't want to fuck So we're going to talk about that and we're going to talk about the ultimate prank, which is communist revolution. Um, but before that, let's talk about some concentration camp concentration news. Concentration camp news. Concentration right? camp off the ticker. They're back, folks. That's like a vertical now. Like you could basically have like you know there were labor reporters until the labor movement was destroyed in the seventies and eighties. You could have just like a concentration camp reporter now. It could be a mm-hmm. whole beat, you know. So much, uh, so much news out there. Concentration camp notes. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, I got to say, you know, I, I'm not the uh, biggest AOC fan in the world. Same. I like her fine. I'm not like I'm not like obsessively attacking her on Twitter all the time. She like is, some weirdos. Yeah, <laughs> she is better than most. And I don't <laughs> it's know not why. my politics, yeah, but it's but, fine. you know, I don't think what's going on right now would be going on if she didn't just go ahead and call them what they are. The C, the C word. Yeah. Concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, credit to her for that. And um it started uh, basically what what like was cut short last year with abolish ice, where people are really starting to mobilize and take seriously what's going on, um, and I think you and I want to talk a little bit about uh, putting in perspective because yeah. a lot of people will say, uh, both conservatives and uh, you know big brained leftist geniuses will say, well, you know, this stuff has always happened under liberal democracy and Obama built it and. You're just getting mad now because uh, Trump is doing it and Orange Mad Bad and all right. that stuff. Um, but I do think there is something uniquely uh, troubling now. And, you know, I oppose this stuff under the Obama administration. Sure. I went Likewise. to, I demonstrated at an ICE, sent, uh, an ICE facility in Queens yep. um, in 2014 or something like that. Um, and I, I thought that every, and I, I cared about this stuff during the, Bush administration too. You cared about concentration rides. camps before it was cool. Well, they, they didn't have they didn't have the the camps back then, but they were doing these Gestapo like raids where they were taking right. parents away at at the the like the slaughterhouses that they worked at um, and putting them in prison, and you know ch- their children would come home from school and they wouldn't have parents anymore. That was what was going on in the Bush administration. The Obama administration kind of 
uh, altered it in a way where they weren't doing those raids. They were just deporting people who, you know, like uh, skate- they skateboarded right. on the sidewalk or something right. like that. Or, you know, they, uh, uh, God forbid, you drive drunk, then you get kicked out of the country. Um, Which, if you're George W. Bush, is fine. You know, you right. just, uh, well, you know he's a citizen of this great country. That's right, he is. Uh, he won unlike the NATO Obama. lottery. He won the NATO lo- uh, lottery. Yeah, Obama, Kenyan. I mean, it's a bit mm-hmm. hypocritical for him. So Obama, uh, his his idea was to still deport millions of people. Uh, millions? Did he deport millions of millions, people? Millions, yes, millions. Um, but they they would be more targeted in terms of the type of people. It wasn't just like they would raid a factory and get rid of everybody. But his goal was to have a net zero immigration. So right. what would happen was you would still be having lots of people coming in through the country, mostly through desert crossings or through, um, you know, overstaying their visas and such. Uh, but the same amount of people would be removed. So there's zero net uh, migration. And uh, I really like a theory of a group called No More Deaths, who um, obviously does incredible work uh, putting out uh, uh, water and food at uh, the mostly at the border of the Sonoran border between Mexico and Arizona. Um, you can be prosecuted for that, right? Yeah, Just like you can uh, go to jail now for picking up uh, refugees in the Mediterranean and saving their lives. You can also go to jail for leaving out food and water right. in the desert, right? Yeah, and, and that trial, you know, he was there was a hung jury in that, but uh, the, the No More Deaths volunteer uh, is, is going to be retried for that, actually. Cool. Um, so, but they, they wrote a pamphlet called uh, Design to Kill, I believe it's called. I'll put it in the show notes. And, and their theory is that uh, this zero net immigration thing, but also it, it's uh, it's predecessing the, the, the policies that came before it uh, from the Clinton administration when this really all began in 1994. Of course, the passage of NAFTA is really when yeah. this immigration wave starts. Cause it's almost the, like it's connected. The Mexican economy was destroyed. Yeah, Campesino, you know, traditional economies the ajitos, in the south of Mexico. The, the ojito uh, communal structures that had been enshrined in the Mexican Revolution, which allowed Mexican peasant farmers to essentially collectivize their production and be able to like eke out a living on the land and be okay. Yeah, that was destroyed by a massive influx of subsidized corn from the north that mm-hmm. was completely obliterated their entire lives. I mean, I, I don't know what that has to do with immigration. I don't know why we aren't talking about how much, how many diseases these people have and how they're all, you know, just milking the system, our, our great healthcare system and shit. But yeah, that, that's a thing. There's some connection there, maybe. So millions of people uh, began to, to cross into the United States uh, in search of work, and it was you know, good for the U.S. economy. Almost any economist will tell you that, um, although it was a, obviously a horrible thing if you were a, a campesino living in Oaxaca to have to leave your home and your family to make money. Uh, oh, working you, those, these horribly exploited jobs. Those people do that uh, because those people do that giant trek uh, just because they want to live, you know, in freedom and yeah, not have the to American pay dream. taxes. They just and, love uh, America. They just love America. Freedom. They love freedom so much. Yeah, it's a choice people make. You know. Uh, so, uh, so eventually, uh, so basically, they used to be able to cross in cities like San Diego or uh, you know whatever. I don't know Texas cities, but you know down El there, Paso, you could, yeah, you could just kind of basically gather up with a hundred friends and like run through Nuevo Lord. Um, there became a kind of, uh, you know, popular outcry over that. So, um, Janet Reno and the Clinton administration started passing the first very regressive immigration laws to, to close down the, the urban crossings and gradually made it, um, you know, uh, made it so you had to cross, uh, through the desert or through mountains and, and rivers, um, 
which killed hundreds of people every year. And the purpose of this policy, according to No More Deaths, uh, according to this one one pamphlet, is um, to have still have this uh, incredibly uh, exploitable source of labor uh, of people who will come in and work super hard for very little. Um, you know, well, they made the choice to come. I mean, that's what they signed up I for. I mean, yeah. basically, you know, and this isn't like foreign to us here in New York. Like, you go to any kitchen, you're watching, you're oh, looking yeah. at people who work double shifts, uh, six or seven days a week, um, and they're forced to live with like four or five other people just in order to afford the rent. Yeah, they're uh, that kind of exploitation is is literally holds the U.S. economy to the point that it is 100%. Um, and, and we all benefit from it um, and we shouldn't forget that. Uh, but, you know, if people get too comfortable in these jobs, you know, maybe they're, ch- maybe they have kids, maybe they get promoted to management or something. They might start to say, uh, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't work so hard or like maybe, uh, maybe we should have the same rights as, as us employees. Um, and that's when you have to start kicking them out. Uh, and that's basically what happened under the, because there's no like this this populist uh, like anti-immigration thing from Lou Dobbs and from Bush and then uh, and then continued on in like a kinder, gentler way under Obama. Um, More quiet. There, there was there's no like real necessity for it. It's just like populist xenophobia combined with the concern that the working class, which is now heavily undocumented, might organize and. Uh, get rid of the, the these sources of exploitation. So really the people the ruling class who knows and understands these things, uh, Democrats and Republicans alike. They want to keep undocumented exploitable labor coming into the country, but they want to make sure they're immiserated yes. and scared and if they speak up, they will be kicked out. It's not abstract to them. It's very fucking concrete. I mean, here's one perfect example of it. Um, you know, you talked about Uh, restaurant work and slaughterhouses earlier um there's a fascinating history going back to the uh to the meatpacking industry right if you think about uh the meatpacking district in new york city which is now a like fancy i don't know like watering hole for like global glot uh you know, globe-trotting elites from all over the country who go club there, or you think of uh, places like Chicago, they had giant regions where unionized meat cutters and, you know, people who worked in slaughterhouses uh, would make a decent buck because they fought and they won the right to have unions in a very brutal and difficult and honestly jarring job of just murdering animals like all day and then later on uh, chopping them up in a very, very... um, I don't know, like skilled fashion, Um, the way that capital in the 70s, 80s and 90s got rid of that unionized sector was a through technology, through technological change. They were able to use uh, frozen and refrigerated meat, which meant that they could go from the stockyards of Chicago and New York City and St. Louis and elsewhere, where these unionized workers were doing all this work and making a decent buck to basically having processing plants that are right sitting right in the center of rural America, humongous chicken and pig and beef uh, slaughtering facilities that have thousands and thousands of workers. And what they did was they literally used these undocumented workers that Andy's talking about to go in and destroy the power of union labor, right? But it wasn't because they were undocumented that the unions got destroyed. It's that for the ruling class, this isn't like a moral argument. This isn't some abstraction, right? It's that if we can pay somebody the bare minimum and they don't have the right to organize 
right? And we can get away with this through all the legal and political, you know, machinery that, that we uh, ha- have control over, then why wouldn't you? So to like e-verify also arises during this age. It was under, um, was under Clinton or was it under George W. Bush? I think it was, I think it might've been under Clinton, but the idea that e-verify would strengthen the working class when this entire structure that we're talking about is downstream from the sort of like class power and political economy that, you know, has shifted over time away from the power of the worker and towards the power of the capitalist class is just completely fucking absurd. And, you know, Donald Trump and uh, the right wing, they are a lot more vocal and they're a lot louder than Obama is because Obama served the same interests, but he wanted to do it quietly and he wanted to do it uh, with decorum and with norms as he deported people, whereas the right wing are unabashed, and we've seen this over the last couple of weeks, unabashed, or fucking couple of years, unabashed in their desire to use brown people people who speak a different language, people who are marginalized in, in this society, in order to basically uh, stir up this 20 30% their base in the United States that is essentially willing to stake their entire political lives on shitting on people that they don't like, shitting on people that they think are stealing their country from them. So I think maybe the difference between Obama and even Bush to an extent and Donald Trump is that this sort of atavistic, uh, jingoistic, nationalist uh, rhetoric, and also, of course, policy and reality, is uh, redounding upon itself and is desensitizing millions and millions of people in this country, you know, towards these human beings. And that is why I'm... When people use the F slur, when people use fascism, the F word, uh, I think oftentimes is very overblown because I think that people are very very eager to see fascism in every single thing but it is exactly that sort of mob mentality on the right where you're finding an other an ex- excluded other uh in order to attack and beat down on and dehumanizing desensitizing eventually putting them into camps and then of course at the end of the day um exterminating them or kicking them out i think what you're, what's dangerous of course right now in this era is that it's not just a policy of the United States that we're doing for quote unquote practical reasons it's now become this rallying cry and that and those forces are not yet in the streets but it's 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 possible to imagine at this late date that these mega forces in the street you know as ice as this gestapo is going in you know and grabbing all these people that you could start to they could start to mobilize you know large sections of uh white america uh, into something that looks like a pogrom. Well, it, it, without getting too speculative into to what could happen, because I think what's happening right now is bad enough. It is, it is. Um, I just want to make a distinction between when people say this is fascist, you know, I want to make a distinction between like what historical fascism was, what fascistic things are, and ultimately the kind of preconditions you need for like a violent street level right wing xenophobic like movement to arise that would be something even more radical than what Trump is kind of operationalizing right now. Well, you know, I, I don't think that's the, you know, it could happen definitely like obviously the next the, like whoever's going to be after Trump, you know, so eventually it's a precondition. someone's yeah. going to be like I need to be even crazier than Trump and that right. person might actually be smart enough to be Tom Cotton some kind or of, Pence you know, dictator yeah. figure because uh 
Trump, like, you know, he likes the idea of fascism and dictatorship, but he just doesn't know, he's not smart right. enough to know what yeah. it is, or he's kind of, like, lazy, he gets bored and stuff, and then every once in a while he's like, oh, I have to remember you to be racist today. can't even be sus to, like, bomb Iran, you know? Um, but, yeah, I think uh, what's important to distinguish is is that turn between the, um, like, the liberal kind of uh, deportation and, and concentration of, of immigrants... Um, and the the Trump kind, uh, it's not just rhetorical. Uh, it's one is about properly managing a state, and you know even even a, a social democratic uh, regime, as we see in Europe, has these conceptions of, of protecting one's borders and yeah. uh, making sure we know who everybody is who passes through the country. It's integral to having a nation um, state in general. Yeah. Um, and uh, but but Trump is uh, is kind of going above and beyond with this phantas uh, this uh, this phantasmagoria. Is that the word I'm thinking? Sure. Of? Why not? It's this, boys chat. We use whatever we want. <laughs> this like just Words fantasy world about like uh, where like even children are are MS-13 members. Right, and right. Um, he he like I don't know if I'm listening to too much Sam Cedar propaganda, <laughs> but he really does seem to believe that stuff from Fast and Furious is like really happening, um, and so it's it's uh, legitimized a kind of cruelty towards uh, thousands and thousands of human beings, and you know we haven't even gotten to the the Central American aspect of this, um, and and listen to our our episode about Tijuana. Uh, from yeah. from uh, March, uh, if you if you want to hear our coverage and, of that, and for deep background, our episode with uh, Justin Chay- uh, Justin Chacon, yeah. yeah, which really gets to, down to why open borders are not uh, are not anti left wing or whatever the fuck the argument was, yeah. But uh, there, there's like a turning point where you get like. Um, I don't know, this is like a very sensitive subject to talk about, but there's the kind of normal thing that happens under liberal democracy of like rounding up certain undesirables and, and putting them and in, in incarcerating them, you know, uh, like obviously the, the prison population um, has uh, like yeah, not, not really gone down yeah. significantly under Obama. Um, and, and, the you know, the prisons in the United States are really bad enough and getting far worse. Yes. Uh, but that's you know as horrible as it is uh, you know it's uh like the worst prison system anywhere ever in, in the world in terms of like capacity and 22 percent of the world's prison population is in the united states um, which has four percent of the population but to me that's like normal liberal shit yeah uh, that's so. just when you when you Bog any democrat liberalism. supports that yep um but you turn a corner when you just talk about um refugees and immigrants who are like the the backbone of exploitation in the economy also being treated as literally treated and talked about as animals yes. that's a rhetor- that's a rhetorical turning point that opens the door to another level of atrocity that we are witnessing. I mean, the, yeah. like the, the Republicans are quick to say these aren't death camps, and you know they're not death camps in the way that the Final Solution produced death camps. They set the camps. bar pretty low, but, but yeah. people are dying. Many people are dying. We don't know how many. Uh, m- many times of of treatable diseases. Many times of diseases that are caused by being put in these aleras, which you know are these like ice boxes, uh, as punishment, as a deterrence. Um, so people are dying in these camps intentionally. And, and more will die unless we push back. And uh, maybe that that's what we should start talking about now is how to yeah. resist it. Um, I so, just want to put a finer sure. point on what you were saying because 
you know, what I get from that, from what you were saying, and I, I agree with it, is that um, it's not quantitative, right? It's not about like how many did Barack Obama deport versus Donald Trump? How many did Clinton, you know, what, how many laws were passed against immigrants, you know, under Clinton or George W. Bush? It's qualitative. And the reason why I, I, I pointed to like some sort of speculative future where things got really bad is because there is that qualitative shift. And what is the outcome if you start to dehumanize these, these people is that, um, especially in a very chaotic and atomized and fucked up society like the United States, you know, it's possible maybe for the first time in, in our lifetimes to imagine something like pogroms happening, something like lynchings happening, right? Where people start to take things into your own hand, into their own hands. And that's when I start to see that sort of qualitative shift there. We can actually start talking about sort of incipient fascism because if fascism is anything, it is a counter-revolutionary, reactionary, right-wing street movement based on violence taking power and destroying all these niceties of you know liberal democracy and all that shit well i i guess i would just disagree with you to the extent that i don't see the right as organizing these kinds of atrocities no, but no, they no. That's but they I, support i so so i think that the the culture within the police and ice yes. and border patrol yeah is doing good enough yes, with that, no, that like nobody needs to do no, more. I, I, I get what you're saying now, and I agree 100%. Like, it is bad enough right now. What I'm, what I'm saying is that everybody seems to be waiting for the, for the other shoe to drop, right? And if you look at history, right? Like, world historically, if you look at the pendulum that things have swung from, like, left to right or in U.S. or global history, like, world historically, Bernie Sanders should win. Like, it, it makes a lot of sense. But when you look at somebody like, if you look at this, when we went back to Clinton, right, and you, you were talking about those, like, uh, the immigration bills of the 90s, right, there is a certain trajectory there, right? So it's not speculation, what is it, just speculation. It's pointing to, like, what's, what is the, like, arc of history? What are we moving towards? And as you said, as, like, this brutality becomes normalized, it's bad enough right now However, we need to like realize that it isn't just the fates of those, you know, tens of thousands of people right now. It's not just the the fates of like millions of immigrants in many many different cities and towns across this country. It's ultimately the fate of everybody because when the right wing comes into power, when they have those mobs on the street, they do not end with the immigrants, right? Just like they didn't end with the Jews, right? Or the gypsies. Eventually, this counter-revolution, because when you have this xenophobic thing to rally the flag around, ultimately, we all get caught up in this. And the liberals who love their niceties and norms and laws and all that shit, they will ultimately lose too. Because once the political and economic structures are in the way of this sort of crusading authoritarianism, those things will be swept away. And with climate change and all the other shit that's happening right now in this world, it's just something, it's, it's, it's to, to point to a path that we might be on right now. It's bad enough, but like, let's, let's understand that it could get way worse. Oh, it will get way worse. Um, and that, that's, that's where I'd like to, that's where we want to transition is like yeah. how to push back against it in a way that doesn't just like, leave us back at the Obama era. Uh, but, you know, just That's to, like reversion to norm. But just like to, <laughs> to sort of like, you know, not to disagree with you, but just to like to this assert the way that I see this like kind of late fascism as functioning differently is that the way that fascism uh, operated in the interwar period, you're absolutely right, was like uh, re relied on this like this fascist street movement. And we do have a fascist street movement in the United States and they do lynch people and they do murder people. 
but it, it tends to be, you know, not the kind of pogroms that you saw um, in Eastern Europe in the interwar period. It's not a popular... It, it was, uh, yeah, it, yeah, because... And that's just because we're in a depoliticized moment historically. Fascism took the principle of, of socialist revolution, the organization, the mass movement, and the mobilized... Um, the aesthetics and mobilized uh, like uh, basically the lower middle class to fight against the workers movement and to fight against broadly abstractions, the, you know, the undesirables, right. the, um, the, the, the people that you could exclude one by one to make one feel like they are taking their country back. And also um, and the, the, yeah. basically the game now is not to get this, that kind of lawlessness like Trump and the Republicans and Putin and Orban and all of these like right populists don't want that kind of like lawless street chaos. Mm. Uh, that's bad for them. What they want is to be be able to manage that kind of exclusion within the institutions of the states. Mm. And you're absolutely right that at some point things can get out of control. Like for example, if we have a contested election in 2020 where it's close oh, and uh, yeah. Joe Biden wins or you know Sanders wins. And we just have like some kind of, you know, uh, you know, MAGA uh, scooter civil war. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, I guess the only thing that gives me hope is that so many of these people are just deeply <laughs> ill, like physically ill. Just imagine like thousands of, uh, you know, people just pouring out of the Walmart with like giant staves and pitchforks on their scooters, their electric scooters, just like coming after you very slowly. But on the other hand, we are talking about the majority of the police and the military. Oh, sure. And, and, yeah. you know, the, That's institutional forces of this country. Yeah, we saw that message guards, board yeah. that came out recently with the um, border border patrol and uh, ice agents where that dehumanization was not uh, was not hidden right like these are the people that are tasked with oh, yeah. these doing are, the violent these are exclusion they're complete scumbags and again like I, I keep coming back to this but like you create the police and the border patrol and all these folks they're not like separated from society they live in communities all yeah, over the place they're people just like us they're people like us who who are in different circumstances they made different choices right but like when you create a culture of that right when you create a political movement that's based on this sort of like disgusting dehumanization and violent rhetoric uh, then um, those people end up you know oftentimes going past their remit as horrible as their remit is. Yeah. You know what I mean? And we've Absolutely. seen that again because no one was supposed to die in these concentration camps. Mm -hmm. And I think that you, you kept saying manage, manage things within the state. And I think that's really important because I think ultimately, again, like broadly and historically, why is this arising at this time? I mean, I'm a determinist when it comes to shit like this. So I, I don't think it's... I, I, you cannot like ex extract this from this slow motion crisis we've been in for the last 12 years right now since 2007 arguably from earlier and you mentioned the prison population right in the united states hasn't really got down there's been some talk on like the soft left and the soft right about doing something about the carceral state people feel like it might have gone too far but you still have millions and millions of americans uh in prison um you know i think that um if you look at it managing populations is something that's becoming that's that was perfected like 20 30 years ago how do you manage surplus populations and i don't think that trump who's a fucking dum-dum or these or, or even stephen miller who's smarter and 
you know, eviler, but like maybe doesn't really have like a broader perspective on shit. I think what they're doing without even knowing it is they are kind of um, emboldening the state in this era where you're going to have more climate refugees, we're going to have wars about water, where the material conditions of the working class and even the middle class throughout the United States continues to deteriorate. This is a ratcheting up of that ability of the state within the structures that are all legal. They're all there to manage, incarcerate, ultimately exclude surplus populations. It's starting with migrants now, right? But I think that as this crisis continues, it, it won't stop at that, right? I think this is part of what the state does. And I think that as long as we don't change like the fundamentals of this system, this will become more a more and more important aspect of the state. You know, the state used to spend, it still does, you know, we used to be the, the world hegemonic empire, you know, being the policemen all over the fucking globe. Well, now that's come home now. Because it's no longer Vietnam or Granada or Iraq, right, that needs managing through violence. Oh, yeah, that's, it's that's now, an important point. Yeah, it's, yeah. Now, it's, now, it's now come home. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of the, um, that's the birth child of empire. That's what a declining empire does if you look through history, right? All of a sudden, all those things happening abroad start to come home because as our material and our social conditions start to deteriorate, you have more poverty, more miseration, more drug abuse, more homelessness, shittier jobs, no unions, no public spaces in which people interact, no political candidates that they care about, right? You start to have a system where people need to be there needs to be social control, right? And I think that that is a trajectory that in its worst case scenario looks absolutely horrific. But even if we stay where we're at right now, it's already bad. The only thing I would push back on a little bit in that is is that I think, you know, the state's primary function is to, uh, you know, protect... Private the, property. Protect capital. Yes, you know, indeed. Um, and the capitalist class is not necessarily right populist or climate fascist. No. Um, so They're actually like offended by a lot of what Trump does, right? Some yeah. of them, some of them love it. Some, yeah. of, some of them don't but, like but it. He's the, kind of ahead point, of the curve. Yeah. My point is that um, there's a there's quite a lot of the the capitalist class that would prefer to go a more like managerial pseudo human rightsy route with this, and there's uh, a side that uh, likes that that thinks that right populism is the writing on the wall, and we have to go that way because that's the, the only option to protect. Uh, to protect the system as it is, um, and there, you know, capitalism is is looking, you know, not it's trying to make this decision. They're not trying to do it ethically; they're trying to do it in terms of where they can find some stability. And climate fascism is a very intriguing uh, offer to these people. Yeah. Um. To you know, just take take their mask off and just go for define total decadent brutality. I know what you mean, but define for people what uh, climate fascism would look like. Oh, that's just what you just said. You know, that's like, you know, like Putting the up big walls exclusion. Is, yeah. um, and, and I think surplus population is like another kind of issue that maybe you and I can go into in a, in a future episode. Yeah. But now we really should get into what we can do about this. Yeah. Because so what we've been seeing uh, over the last week is definitely very heartening um, in terms of people amassing, uh, you know, trying to uh, block ice in certain ways, looking out for the ice raids, trying to report them. Um, uh, people not an- like uh, churches opening up as sanctuary spaces. Yeah. Uh, the base in New York opened themselves up as a sanctuary space. 
Um, and then generally, uh, the word getting out there that you do not have to open your door yes. for ICE agents. That's huge. I know ICE tried to, uh, I think it's just a normal thing that they do, but it was reported this time on Saturday. They they knocked on a couple doors in New York and people just didn't answer. In Sunset Park, yeah, they knew better and, than yep, to and, open and the door. And in Harlem as well. Um and you also we're also seeing these kind of sit-ins at ICE facilities uh, organized by by uh, groups like uh, If Not Now, for instance. Um, so you, we're we're starting to see these like disruptive actions, these direct actions. Um, there's starting to be this kind of rhetoric of uh, of like really doing something direct to these camps. And obviously, what happened in Tacoma is one example of that. Um, that Folks, you know, nobody don't here do is that, right? Pigs. No matter how we might yeah. feel about uh, about that that action and yeah, that manifesto, I mean, um, yeah. it's not it's not going to change things. Right. We have to figure out how to do to do this collectively. And the best the best example of this is unfortunately that joke group about raiding Alia Fifty One and sieging <laughs> the aliens. I mean, that was quite the meme. It there's no, meme. you know, like as much as I like to joke about the alien stuff and like that, it, not even joke like that is like That's what I yeah. look into. Um, d- I think it is like a clear displacement of people's yes. discomfort with their lack of ability to do something that they are using this metaphorical joke Facebook yeah, group yeah, yeah. To, to imagine possibilities of how we can take power back against an atrocious system. That's a great point. My therapist would use displacement too. <laughs> well done. You're doing therapy for the uh, left in the United States. I mean, I would say, you know, on that tip that, um, you know, we shit on libs a lot uh, and there's a lot of shit libs out there. But like, you know, oftentimes, like you were talking about in 2014 with the protests against ICE when they were doing this shit, oftentimes it's people like us on the left left, you know, who are the kind of canaries in the coal mine because we sort of recognize these things structurally and we're willing to go out there and do direct action. Not necessarily like, again, getting shot by ICE, trying to start a facility, but doing things like Andy said, like showing up and um, informing people, spreading information about how to protect yourself and, of course, doing demos and things of that sort. I think it's like, it's both very heartening on the one hand and also it goes to show that like as much as we don't have a lot of power on the far left in the United States right now, we do have something which is that these issues that we've been talking about, once they, they, they are moral issues at the end of the day when anything you're talking about, right? And we've been banging on about this shit for like many, many years and it's very heartening when all of a sudden like the progressive left and even the democratic left starts to come along and we can work together with them on that. And, um, you know, it's not to say that, uh, you know, things are, um, that Trump was a gift to us, right? But certainly it was a mask off moment for a lot of people in the United States where like, you know, a lot of the shit that Obama did is now, you know, under a Democratic presidency is now something that people are viscerally reacting to, hundred, like, you know, tens of millions of people all over the country. At the same time, though, I would say, kind of circling back about what not to do, um, I gave liberals some respect there and I gave Democrats some respect because AOC and others have been out the gate um, you know, calling the alarm on, on these deaths and this brutal treatment of these people, right? But recognize, too, that there are different fractions of capital of the capitalist class and the Republicans and the Democrats, as much as they're like big tents and they bring a lot of different parts of the social world together politically to do stuff. They also represent different fractions of the of the ruling class. Right. So ultimately, it's going to take as much as it's nice to have liberals and Democrats along for the ride. Ultimately, 
as Andy was pointing to before, if we don't start to or- self-organize ourselves and, and take collective action and build the sort of institutions and movements necessary to make a real effective change, as soon as we get back to an Obama character, as soon as we get to somebody like that puts a smiley face on the concentration camps and maybe kills only like, you know, one or two people, you know, a year instead of like 100 or 200 people a year, right? That's not good enough. Right. So as, as much as like the Democrats will go part of the way with us, we need to understand that they do not ultimately reflect the ways in which we'll get out of this situation. Right. And the, the best way to um, conceptualize this is the fact that a lot of the outrage started with this uh, incredible footage of a DOJ lawyer saying uh, people in these camps don't need toothbrushes and soap. Oh my god, yeah. So our goal is not to give them toothbrushes and right. soap. Like right. certainly they should have that. Yes. Our goal is to free them. Cha- to cha- destroy cha- the structural conditions that create concentration camps to begin with. Yeah, um and also but we have to connect everything at play here. Yes. So I mean a lot of people from Central America are coming Yes, because of violence imposed under U.S.-backed regimes and so on, but also because of climate change. Yes. Like, climate change is is hitting the tropics in a way that is, uh, you know, we don't really, like, we, 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 when it's like 100 degrees here, we say, oh, climate change. But Within in, in our the tropics, lifetimes in 30 years, they will be uninhabitable, as far as scientists understand right now. So, well, yeah. I mean, just, just right now, people can't grow the cash crops that they need to subsist. That is putting people in desperate situations where they might start gangs or join gangs or, or what have you, or they just need to leave as economic refugees. Um, yeah, I mean, like everything basically intersects uh, in, in terms of why this situation is happening. And so the movement against it needs to be against climate change, against a war with Iran, um, pro-refugee, pro-immigrant, uh, pro-solidarity, between U.S.-born workers and foreign-born workers, uh, like uh, fighting back against, uh, you know, the the misogynistic revanchism of, of the abortion ban, yes. uh, of transphobia. You know, it, it all has to be one coherent movement because it is coherently all congealing in, in these reactionary atrocities. Yes. And it's not it's not virtue signaling, you know, to point to uh, trans rights or immigrant rights. It's not a distraction from the class struggle, you know, to talk about women's uh, right to um, I don't know uh, reproductive, you know, freedom. Uh, no, we're all in it together. We're all in it together, and honestly, like each one of these issues are class issues in their own way, and each one of them come from the same sort of systems of exploitation and domination, and ultimately alienation political and otherwise that all of us suffer under so if you're going to create solidarities across space and across time and across languages and across borders right you ultimately need to understand that we're not attacking bad cheeto man right because he's like vulgar and disgusting and once he's gone everything's going to be okay it's not even enough to say that like oh obama deported people too Ultimately, we need to have a structural analysis. And Andy says, said before, recognize that all of these struggles are inter- interconnected, which allows us to focus on the main enemy, which is, of course, the capitalist system itself and its states. And everybody listening 
know like you've got this part in the podcast you probably know this stuff already we're preaching to the choir to some extent but also we we need to uh stress that just because we're we have this kind of structural analysis it doesn't mean that you you poo poo uh all the liberal actions out there like that's where you're gonna find people yes and like they're the most effective like the liberals have been really the most effective in certain moments during the trump administration Uh, in other moments Anarchists and communists have been more effective, um, but like uh, I just pulled up this Vice article. Just a second. So th- this is a Vice article talking about this uh, this growing movement around the concept of "never again is now." Um, so on June thirtieth, over one hundred Jewish protesters gathered in front of an ICE detention center in Elizabeth, New Jersey, um, tried to block employees from entering. Uh, Thirty six were arrested. Uh, next day, 2,000 American Jews expressing interest online uh, in taking similar actions in their city. On July 2nd, 1,000 Jews in Boston and a few hundred in Providence did similar location-specific anti-ICE actions with 18 arrested. Uh, more protests followed on July 4th in Philadelphia with 33 arrests. On July 5th, nearly 500 protested uh, Nancy Pelosi's office building in San Francisco with the message of close the camps or we'll close your office. Um, demonstrations continued this week in Chicago, D.C., Buffalo, and New York. So obviously, if you go to these protests, you're not going to find people making this, uh, like, explicitly taking on capitalism. Right. But when there is a moment like this, we have to support it and push it forward in 100%. some way. Uh, and not show up like dicks or just say, or like from Try the internet, just say that, oh, this is nonviolent civil disobedience. This is not what we care. Right. We don't care about it. You yeah, know? That's why I said before, like, you know, the, the liberals are important because um, they have a moral stake in this in this issue and they come from a good place. And we they are human beings, too, and we're not separate from them. Like Andy said, we have to engage in these movements alongside these people, you know, in solidarity with them. You know, as far as we could go. And then, of course, more importantly, in solidarity with the people who are in those concentration camps who are being affected mm-hmm. in those cities and towns all over the country. And you might find that not all those people actually are liberals. They're just you right. know, plugging into what they can plug into. And we like that's that's really the message I want our listeners to take from that. Is, they could be is, on uh, the on the Sam Cedar pipeline. They could have gone from <laughs> yeah. majority reports, the Michael Brooks show. And then to the Antifada, and then they're going to retire to literary hangover. You know, you don't know where these people are uh, are coming from. So just get out there, man. Get in the get in the protest and try to love someone. <laughs>